please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. That is where we are going to be. We're in our third week of Romans 5. Been taking our time working our way through this chapter because it's a critical chapter. It's just filled. And, and the point that we made, started making four weeks ago, is that in Romans 5, Paul presents the fact that in the gospel, we have both security and blessing. We have absolute guaranteed security and we have blessing in this relationship now we have with God through his son Jesus Christ. And, and it starts in verse 1 and I'm going to refer back several times to verse 1 uh, today. But in verse 1, we are told that because of the justification we have by our faith in Jesus Christ, we now have peace with God. We were at war with God prior to Jesus invading our lives, but now we have peace with him. We have been reconciled to him. And as a result of that faith, we also now get to stand in his grace, in God's grace, in his body of grace. We get to, we get to take part in his, his entire body. We have been made whole. We have integrity, and, and not necessarily integrity of character, there necessarily, but integrity meaning we've been completed. We are, uh, we are without fault. We are no longer fragmented. We're not disintegrated in any way. We've been brought together and made whole in Christ. And as a result, we, we stand rejoicing in the hope that he's given us, the hope of the glory of God, the hope that, that we get to live with him forever in this relationship. And, and even hope in our suffering. Paul says that in Christ we have hope because of our suffering, we have a new perspective on it. We, we see our suffering in a different light. We understand that when we suffer with Christ's help, with the help of the Holy Spirit in our lives, it's going to produce in us endurance and character. It's going to produce steadfastness. And then in verse 5, uh, again another verse we're going to refer back to a lot. He says, and God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. This is all about God loving us. And, and these verses, verses 1 through 11 of chapter 5, I've, I've studied Romans before, I've taught Romans before. Never before, though, have I been as impacted by these 11 verses and, and just slowly beginning to understand how important they are. And I've been just ruminating on them everywhere I go, praying through them. No matter what I'm doing, they've been brought to my, my mind. And now, verses 6 through 11, we get to complete this package of the first 11 verses. And 6 through 11 are really Paul's explanation of how God's love, which we see in verse 5, being poured out to us into our hearts by his Holy Spirit, how his love is demonstrated for us and in us, in this grace in which we now stand, this body of grace. And, and one of the points that we need to get across this week is that in Christ we do have forgiveness of our sins, and that is very important. But that forgiveness also draws us into a relationship with God, an eternal relationship to be sure, but a relationship that starts with Him now through the Holy Spirit and the resurrected Christ in us. It is not like we, we get to say, okay, God, thank you for forgiving my sins in Christ Jesus. I'm good to go now, and we take off. No, we are also drawn into this relationship with him. 
this marvelous, wonderful relationship that gives us this security and gives us this blessing. And so these six verses we'll look at today flow directly from verse 5, which says, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And we're just going to break this into two sections and, and go at it. We're going to look at verses 6 through 8, and then we'll look at verses 9 through 11. So, again, verses 6 through 8, let's read it again. Can't read this enough. Paul writes, for while we were still weak, just a, a moment on that. While we were still, that word still we tend to run by, but it's one of the most important words in this passage. The word means to continue in, to be dominated by, to have a life that is ruled by. And, and in this case, later on he says, while we were still sinners, we have this life that, that is continuing in and dominated by sin. Here he uses the word powerless, while we were weak. And literally, the word means while we are unable to help ourselves. We're thoroughly unable to become holy, to become worthy, to have any sort of merit, to be lovable. We are 100% unable to do that on our own. That's why we need the intervention of God in our lives through His Son, Jesus Christ. Paul says, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He died for those who cannot merit loveliness and worthiness for themselves. He died to give us loveliness and worthiness, to give us life. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good, per good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. And, and essentially, the, 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 the big idea of this, these three verses is this. Against all odds, against all possible human hope, Jesus Christ died for us and saved us from ourselves, from God, for God, by God. That's what he's done for us. If, if, you, if you like sports, the way we could say it is, is this is the most ridiculous upset victory in the history of the universe. I was alive for this and watched it. This was better than when the 1980 U.S. Olympic hockey team beat the Russians on the way to their gold medal. Better than that. Some of you might remember in 1960, not a sports analogy, but nevertheless, a victory that was not supposed to be won. It was an upset victory. This is bigger than when Kennedy beat Nixon for the presidency. It's bigger than what happened last night at Sun Devil Stadium, although I still don't understand what happened. All I know is that ASU got the win and Wisconsin got the loss, and they're mad. But it's bigger than that. It's bigger than anything we can imagine. We had no chance for victory. We're hopeless and helpless, but Jesus pulls it out for us. And, and to emphasize how hopeless and helpless we were, Paul uses four words to describe us in this paragraph three of them occur in the three verses we just looked at. The other one occurs in verse 10. I'll, I'll give them to you now, though. We were powerless. It's the word translated weak. Some of your, uh, your translations say powerless, literally unable to do anything to help ourselves. We are unable to be meritorious in any way by ourselves. And so the justification that we have in Jesus, this looks back at verse 1 of chapter 5, the justification we have is all from God. Not even a little bit is, is us. And then, and then he says we're ungodly. And here, this is not so much about how unlike God we are, but rather 
It's a description of how in our flesh without Jesus we exist in opposition to God. And again, that looks back at verse 1 of chapter 5, where in Christ we now have peace with God. We're, we're no longer living in opposition to him. And then he calls us sinners. He just says it. We're sinners. We miss the mark. We're unholy. We're impure. And so we offend. We're, we're offensive. We offend God. We offend ourselves. We offend others. I get an amen on that one? A nervous amen anyway? We, we even offend the creation. We, we're at odds with all four of those things because of our sin. But I, here I want you to understand this because we're going to talk about this more in the coming weeks. When he says we're sinners, when Paul says we're sinners, it's not just our behavior that he's talking about. It's, just, it's not just our sinful activity. In fact, that's really not even the primary thing he's talking about. He's talking about the nature, the core of our being that creates this behavior that's sinful. He says as a, at our core, our DNA is composed of sin. Our nature is sinful. We cannot do anything but sin. That's what he's getting at, and that offends because God is holy. And then he calls us enemies in verse 10. Here you go. We would destroy God if we could. And I know some of you right out of the gate, oh, no, not me, man. I never want to destroy God. Yes, we would. In our flesh, with eyes that are blinded by Satan, because Satan comes to us, and he, this is a common theme. He says, look, if you want freedom, the best way you can achieve freedom is to get rid of God. Because God's the guy, he's the, he's the cosmic killjoy, he's got all the, all the restrictions and the rules, and he's the don't do this guy. So he says, he says, if you could get rid of God, you could have all the freedom you want. But Jesus comes along and says, no, that's not where true freedom lies. Who you're really in bondage to is sin. What you're really in bondage to is this very nature that you cannot escape, this nature that is sinful. And so real freedom is escaping the bondage of your sinful nature. And you do that through Christ. Paul says, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Freedom from the bondage of sin and free to live in relationship with God in others through the eyes of the gospel, through the eyes of the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, I know this is tough to hear. It's like, man, it's Sunday morning. The weather's finally a little bit better. I got a cardinal game to go to. I'm in a good mood, and you're telling me how much I stink. Listen, this is the bad news. We have to tell you the bad news in order to get to the good news because the good news is really, really good. And in fact, if we didn't tell you the bad news, we couldn't even tell you about the good news in this passage because really this passage is more about good news than bad news, but we appreciate and understand the good news better once we understand what it is we're up against, which is ourselves. Uh, John, uh, James Montgomery Boyce makes this observation right at this point in this paragraph in Romans. He says, There are a great many preachers today, many of them famous, who never want to say anything unpleasant about sinful human nature. They argue that people are already so discouraged about the world and themselves that they do not need to be told that they are sinners, that they are powerless, that they're ungodly, and that they are enemies of God. That's too bad. Because those preachers then avoid this text, which is actually the clearest demonstration of persevering, faithful, enduring, and sacrificial love recorded in the Bible, God's love for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us to set us free 
from sin. That is good news. And you can't preach that unless you say you need it. And here's why you need it. God doesn't love us because we're so lovable. Rather, he loves us in the midst of our wickedness, in the midst of our most unlovableness. And that's real love, and he's done it for us. And this paragraph demonstrates it. God demonstrates his, his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, his son died for us. And I'll tell you, you know, it's easy to love someone who's lovable. This is one of the arguments that Paul makes. Easy to love someone when they're lovable, right? It's not a challenge. We like to be with people who affirm us and, and are not difficult and are not challenging, but the Bible is filled with times when, when it says that we're to love people unconditionally and affectionately no matter what. You think about some of those husbands, those of us who are married, we have to love our wives. And Paul's not exhorting us to love our wives only when they're lovable. He's especially exhorting us to love our wives in those rare times when they are unlovable. But he says we have to do that because that's exactly what God did for us in Christ Jesus. While we were unlovable, he loved us. The Bible tells us to love our neighbor. I, I, I've lived in neighborhoods a lot, all my life. And it's, I, I, I tell you, it's easy to love those neighbors who are quiet and maintain their yard and bake me cookies. Those, those are lovable, lovable neighbors. He's saying, no, you've got to love your neighbor when they're an enemy too. When they're bothering you and disrupting you. You might be the only entrance into the understanding of Christ that they may have. But more than that, it's because God loved you that way. You need to love them that way as well. 1 Corinthians 13, which is known as the love chapter. Here's just a little snippet of it. Love perseveres, love is faithful, love is filled with hope, and love endures everything. Oh, so it's not just when I feel like it. No, it's not. And guys, please, I got to tell you, I, 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 feel, I feel like I got to say this. I, I really am not preaching at you on this issue. I'm preaching to myself, and you're just here listening to it. Because I struggle with this. I really do. I, I know that God loved me in my un, most unlovableness. And when I'm able to love others in their unlovableness, it is not because I know how to do it or I have the power to do it. It's because God has saved me and his spirit resides in me and that's the only way I can do it. Otherwise, I struggle with this. It's hard. It really is. But that's how much he loves us. And, and verse 6 tells us that this was done at the right time. I want to explain this, this time thing. There, there's two words in the Bible, the Greek, that, that, that we translate as time. Uh, one is chronos. We get the word chronological. That's, that's the exact moment in time refers to that. And Jesus died at 7.05 in the evening. Okay, that's chronos time. That's not the time he's using here. That's not the word he's using here. The word he's using is kairos. And the word kairos is more about timing than it is about time. It's about opportunity instead of a specific time on the clock. It's actually an agricultural term uh, that, that means it's harvest time. It's the best time right now, everything is aligned for you to go and harvest your crop. Here you go. It's the ripe time. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about timing here. Uh, some of you know 
I love the Midwest. I really do. I, I was born and raised here. I'm living here now. I, I'm fine here as well, but I really love the Midwest. I lived for four years in Chicago. Every summer we go to the Midwest. My wife's mom is from Wisconsin. My wife is originally from uh, Minneapolis. And so we go, we fly there. We either land in Minneapolis, Milwaukee, or Chicago, rent a car, and we drive everywhere, and we love it. And I want you to know, yes, I love the Midwest even in January. That's how much I love the Midwest, okay? I really do, I love it there. But especially in the summer, it's beautiful, it's green. I don't, I don't, I don't really like to drive long distances here in the, in, in the southwestern United States. Driving to Tucson is painful. Driving to Los Angeles is even worse, okay? And the fans are the only thing that distract me on that drive, all right? But I love the drive. We get in that car and we drive everywhere, and I love it, and it just, it's relaxing and it's fun. Twelve years ago or so, I think, I think our kids were nine and five. Our daughters were nine and five. We had a three-week thing planned there. You're going to go everywhere. And Minneapolis was our home base. We land there, we rent the car, and we're going to go up to my wife's, Aunt and uncle's house, they live in the northwest suburbs of Minneapolis, so from the airport, take 494 West, you hit Minnesota Highway 100, and it's freeway, it's a freeway in the, in the western suburbs of Minneapolis, and as we're getting on to the Highway 100, we're accelerating onto the, on the 100 freeway, I am just beside myself, I'm about to burst, I can't wait, I, I got three weeks in the Midwest, and I'm looking around, and the, my wife's there, and the girls are in the back, and I'm looking, and I, go, I go, oh man, look how beautiful it is, everything is just perfect, and literally, as the word perfect was rolling off my lip, I look in the rearview mirror, and there's a police officer behind me with his lights on, and he's pulling me over, I look down at my speedometer, I'm going 10 miles over the speed limit, so he pulls us over onto the freeway. And he comes up, and we talk, and this, that, and the, oh, sorry, first day of vacation, kind of embarrassed in front of your family, all that, okay. And he has mercy on me. He says, I'm just going to give you a warning. But then he says, we got a little problem here where we, where we pulled off. There's no way you're going to be able to safely accelerate and get back into this freeway traffic from here. So here's what we're going to have to do. I'm going to back up about 100 yards. You're going to back up also in front of me, and then you'll have enough room to be able to find a gap, accelerate, and, and pull into the freeway traffic, which was moving very quickly. I said, okay, so he backs up, I back up, I'm ready to go, I'm looking for the gap, I see a perfect gap, and I floor it. The problem, of course, is that I had failed to take the car out of reverse. And, <laughs> and I mean, my, my wheels are spinning, rocks are flying, okay? And I'm, going, I'm heading right for this police cruiser. My wife, my kids, screaming bloody murder, okay? Slam on the brakes. And I mean, I'm like an inch from this guy. And I look back at him, and this is all he could do. <laughs> just go back to Arizona, please, you know? Just put it into drive, looking, get in there. And so it, it, we're driving... And, now, four people looking straight ahead, expressionless. <laughs> now, three minutes in, Jackie says, still think everything's perfect, honey? <laughs> Just laughing. Yeah. You, you know, a lot of us think that life is filled with coincidences. I would say that they are filled with teachable moments. 
and that God coordinates those for us. And you can call them coincidences if you want, but, but he uses his timing at the right time to teach us. He, he does it to humble us. He does it to remind us what we should value in worship. He does, it to, he does it to give us the wisdom to be able to buttress and support the perseverance, endurance, and patience, and steadfastness that he talks about in verses 3 and 4 in this chapter. And that, and that is kind of a funny story, and I have many others that are considerably more painful where God has used his timing specifically to deal with my pride and my arrogance and to knock my idols off of their perch in my life. Yet this timing in verse 6 is even more significant than what, I'm just talk, what I've just talked about that. It's not a timing that is teaching us. It's the timing that rescued us. And he did it at the right time. And, and the funny thing about this is as you study history, you find out just how fickle we human beings are. Because if you study church history, and I think Sean will even talk a little bit about this, if you study church history, you realize that for hundreds of years before Jesus came, the Jews were all walking around going, where's the Messiah? The Messiah is supposed to be coming. God promised the Messiah. I don't understand why he's not here yet. Where is he? Where, are you the Messiah? Are you the Messiah? Were they looking under every rock and in every crevice for a Messiah? They had hundreds, literally hundreds of, if you read the literature, of Messiah sightings. And they would even uh, project that on people and say, you must be the Messiah. And then he would make a mistake or do something. And no, it's not you. And then they would run and they grabbed somebody else. There were Messiahs everywhere. And then Jesus came at the right time and since that time people have been looking back going I don't think that was him it was it doesn't seem right that he would come then and I think that Messiah is still coming and when is the Messiah really going to come he's come it's Jesus of Nazareth the son of God and he came at the right time to rescue us and to save us and he died for us and Paul makes the point you know, he died for us. And dying for someone, even a good person, is difficult. But he died for us as sinners, as enemies. And I'll tell you, my understanding of God's sacrifice and love for me really changed radically after I had children of my own. I became a Christian when I was 27. And it wasn't for six more years until we had children. And then suddenly, I had a new perspective on this whole idea of sacrificial love that God has for us. I thought I loved Jackie, my wife, with the most complete love I could ever have. It's nothing like the love that I have for my children. And if you're parents, you understand what I'm talking about. It, it's, I, I, I can barely even describe it. It's a love that is so other that it would literally motivate me to do things that are virtually unthinkable in any other context. I would die for my kids. My wife would too. In fact, we've had this conversation before. And some of you will think this is even a little bit morbid, but I'm going to share this conversation with you. It wasn't a long conversation because we both agreed very quickly. But both of us talked about this. We said if we're ever in some weird situation where we are being forced to choose between our spouse living and our children living, we're supposed to pull the trigger on the spouse, so to speak. It's okay for me to say that Jackie dies before my kids. It's okay for her to say, sorry, Frank, the kids are going to live. We're Jesus' kids. The theme of adoption is all through the Bible. He died for us because he loves us with this other kind of love that is hard for us to get our minds around. But it's even more than that. 
somebody comes to me and says, Shelby, my oldest, Frank, in order to save the lives of these billion people, Shelby has to die. That's a fair trade-off, isn't it, Frank? Your daughter for a billion people, isn't that a fair trade-off? So let's go ahead. Let's go ahead with the sacrifice of Shelby. I'd say no. But that's exactly what God did for us. He gave up his son for all of us, for billions and billions of people. Gave up his son. This is an incredible love. And this is what Paul is trying to get to. This is really good news. God showed his love for us that while we were still sinners, his son Jesus died for us. And now listen to this, the last three verses for today. Since therefore we now have been justified by his blood, much more, or some of your translations would have, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, or how much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have reconciliation. So these are the verses. These are the payout verses. This is where he says, listen, as bad as it was, as bad as you and I were, it's really good, and we should be rejoicing. And you see a pattern in these verses. It's, I, I love you know, studying literary devices. And, and, and the pattern here is the Hebrew notion of using something light and something heavy. Comparing the two in order to make a point. If, if this heavy thing is true, how much more then is this light thing true? Or it can be used the other way sometimes in some contexts. If this light thing is true, how much more is this heavy thing true? And we use this argumentation all the time without even thinking about it. Here you go. So uh, if the Miami Heat are the best team in the National Basketball Association, that would be the big thing, the heavy thing, how much more are they better than the Phoenix Suns? That would be the light thing. You see how that works? Attorneys use this methodology all the time in court and when negotiating contracts. Politicians use this all the time in campaign speeches and debates. Salespeople use it all the time to try to sell you something. My, my wife uses it on me for the most simple of things. You know, hey, Frank, if, if you need $10 for lunch, how much more do I need $20 for lunch? I mean, what can you say? Here's 30. It's good. If the death of Jesus was good for reconciling us to God, how much more does his life reconcile us? How much more does his life before, how much more does his life after his death reconcile us to God? This is good news. And when Paul does this, he likes this language of much more and how much more and more than that. And he does this three times in this paragraph, which reaffirms the notion that the gospel is about our security in Christ. Not only does the blood of Christ justify us, but it also saves us from the wrath of God, the coming judgment of God. Not only does the death of Jesus reconcile us to God by forgiving our sin, but his life reconciles us by giving us this ongoing re eternal relationship with God, this body of grace in which we can now enter. And verse 9 says, how much more will we be saved? Saved. 
The, the word is variously translated as rescued or delivered or, or redeemed. And there's actually three tenses of being saved that the Bible talks about. There's the past tense. I have been saved by Jesus on the cross. On the cross, Jesus forgave me of my sins. I've been saved. But there's also a present tense. I am being saved. I am in the process of, of working through sanctification, of becoming more and more like Jesus. I stand justified with God, but I'm also being saved. I'm being sanctified. This is what Paul refers to in Philippians when he says, work out your salvation in Christ Jesus. And then there's a future sense. I will be saved when Jesus comes again to set everything right. And verse 9 is this third tense. It's the future tense. Paul's talking about how much more will you be saved when he comes again. His life saves. And, and here's one of the points I'm trying to make. God's salvation is thorough and it's holistic. Our past is paid for and forgotten. Our present sin is covered and even sometimes averted or prevented. And our future is guaranteed. There is simply no life, no part of our life, no realm of our life, no minute, there's no molecule in our life that is untouched by the salvation of Jesus Christ. It's what we like to say at redemption, all of life is all for Christ. And verse 9 refers to the blood. And I'm, I'm going to mention this again. I've done it before. I'm, I'm going to hit it again. Blood atonement. There's, there's this amazing movement in, in Bible, supposedly Bible-believing churches and denominations against blood atonement. We're in the 21st century now. We're smarter. We're more sophisticated. We have a much better understanding of things. And blood atonement is so distasteful. It's so violent. It's unloving. It's, it's a form of cosmic child abuse. I've actually heard that phrase many, many times. Cosmic child abuse. The Father on the Son, Jesus. The problem is, is that blood atonement is clearly taught throughout the Scripture, Old and New Testament. And to deny it is to deny the authority of God, the authority of His work, the authority of His Word, and the authority of His love. But it goes deeper than that. To, to deny or to dilute blood atonement in any way is also a subversive way to try and soften or remove the wickedness of sin. You think about it. We, we don't like to be told that our sin is wicked and evil and that we do that. And, and instead, we run around and we make up ways of talking about our sin. We make mistakes or we slip up or it's an oversight or we meant well but we didn't execute correctly. And our intentions are always wonderful and, and good and holy. We're always trying to equivocate, equivocate about our sin and use euphemisms about our sin. But when we understand that sin is bought and paid for with blood, it is a clear reminder that sin is serious it is wicked it's destructive and that it kills and it jars our reality about just how far off the mark we really are in our sinfulness but but it also demonstrates just how love we really are because blood had to be shed for us to be saved that's love Paul's trying to get at the demonstration of love. Yes, we're wicked, but look at this love. The blood was shed. And verse 10 says he did this for us even while we were enemies of God. He shed his blood for his enemies. Apart from Christ, apart from the Holy Spirit opening our eyes and our understanding to Jesus, we live as God's enemies. We're rebellious, ungodly, we trust in the wisdom of man rather than in the wisdom of God. We think he's foolish and we're smart. 
And as, as John Stott has once said, we are certain of our own sullied morality when we line it up against God's idea. Yet God made the ultimate sacrifice for us. During the Revolutionary War, there was this preacher of the gospel named, named Peter Miller, and he had a church. But he had, he had a neighbor, one of those neighbors that were called to love. And he had this neighbor who, who really hated him and, and, and didn't like his church and, and ridiculed his followers. And sometimes his ridicule took on more than just verbal abuse. He was uh, physically, violently abusive towards the church and towards Peter Miller. Well, one day this fellow was found guilty of treason and he was sentenced to death. And Miller heard about this and he decided, well, I'm going to go and see what I can do. Not to expedite the execution, but to try to get him pardoned. So he set out on foot, had to go 60 miles. George Washington was actually involved in the adjudication of this, of this trial, and so he tried to get an audience, Peter Miller, with George Washington, and he was, and he, he explained to Washington why he wanted this guy pardoned, and Washington listened, and, and he's, in the end he said, you present a compelling case, but in the end I'm not going to pardon your friend. And Miller looked at him confused, and he said, uh, uh, there's, uh, there's some confusion here. He's not my friend. He's my, my worst living enemy. So that caused Washington to ask some more questions, and, and he said, i, I got to think a little bit more about this. Went away, and then eventually came back, and he said, I'm going to grant the pardon. We're going to write it up, and you're going to deliver it. So Miller takes it, and he goes over to the jail where this guy is being held. And, and when Miller showed up, the guy naturally thought that the reason Miller was there was to gloat over his execution and to mock him while he's being executed. Imagine his surprise when it was Miller who presented his pardon. You and I were God's enemies. We were standing on the gallows when Jesus Christ came at the right time. Not only did Jesus die for us, his enemies but he lived for us as well and what Miller was doing was living out his gospel in his community in a way that was irrefutable and I think about this all the time I just I'm just going to ramble about some things I've been thinking a lot about lately and for months and months and months I really do believe you can come and tell me later that I'm deluded but I really do believe that I could die for Jesus if somebody came up to me and held a gun to my head and said renounce Christ or die I think I could take the bullet especially now that I'm in my 50s and I'm on the back nine of life, and I, I think I could do it, okay? I really do, okay? But, but to actually live for Jesus, that's a lot more challenging. It really is. And I just keep stumbling and falling. And thank God the Holy Spirit is there to explain to me where I'm stumbling and follow, falling, but also to explain to me that I am still loved and I am still justified and I am still righteous and I am still standing in His grace. But it's hard to live for Jesus. I would make the case it's probably easier to die for Him than to live for Him. To live for Him, to deny myself as He calls me to, to pick up my cross every day. This is Matthew 16. This is Luke chapter 9. Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, you need to deny yourself and pick up your cross daily. I think about this all the time. In fact, I blogged about it a couple of weeks ago. There are two imperatives in that saying. Deny yourself, take up your cross. That first imperative, the, to deny yourself, 
I would argue is kind of the same for everybody. We all have to do that. We all have to quit thinking of ourselves first. We have to put our family ahead of us. We have to put our neighbor and our friends ahead of us. We have to put our bosses and our subordinates and our coworkers ahead of us. Yes, we even have to put our fellow freeway drivers ahead of us. We're all called to do that. Here's the different thing, though. That second imperative. Take up your cross. We're all called to do that, too. Yes, but I would argue that everybody's cross is different. And it's that cross that really challenges me. And again, I'm just being as honest as I can be here. I look around my life, and I look at my cross, and I look at the crosses that some other people are bearing, and my cross is puny compared to theirs. It's puny. I have a friend right now, I I cannot describe the circumstances, it might be too hurtful, but he and his wife for the last 20 years have lived the life, a cross life that I don't think anybody in this room would ever choose. Tough life. I see other people with these massive crosses working their way through life and not uttering a single complaint about it. They continue to faithfully serve. They just faithfully carry that cross everywhere. And hear me, they're not martyrs. They're not doing it with a martyr's mentality. They're doing it because they're in Christ. That's it. They're in Christ. By the power of the resurrected Christ. Think about Jesus and his life and all the garbage that he took. In some ways, I would say it was probably easier for him to die for us than to live for us. But it's his life that gives us eternal life. That's a big deal. He died for us, and Paul reminds us that he lived for us too. He lived for us both before and after his death. And finally, verse 11 tells us that we rejoice because we've been reconciled with God through Jesus. We rejoice Again, let's just hit this again. That, you see that word reconciled, you can assume that there had to be enmity. There was a war going on. If I tell you that David and I have reconciled, if you don't know David and you don't know me, you don't know anything about us, the one thing you can tell me is that at one time we were at odds with each other. We were at war with each other if we're now reconciled, right? So you know that's true. Well, that was our condition with God prior to being given peace with God through our faith and our justification in Jesus Christ. And so we rejoice in that. And and you look at the theme of rejoicing all through verses 1 through 11. All of these things we rejoice in. The peace of God, God's grace, God's glory, God's power, God's persistence in our life, God's love, God's reconciliation. We even rejoice in the fact that he's with us through our suffering. The the late, great John Stott, on this paragraph of Romans, wrote this. We should be the most positive people in the world. We cannot mooch around the place with a drooping, hangdog expression. We cannot drag our way through life moaning and groaning. We cannot always be looking on the dark side of everything as negative prophets of doom. No. We exult in God. 
then every part of our life becomes saturated with glory. Christian worship becomes a joyful celebration of God, and our lives are joyful service to God. So come, let us exalt in God together. And as I close, I have, a, I have a thought. I just want you to think about this as you go today. Think about it the rest of today. Yes, even while the Cardinals game is on. Think about it the rest of this week. I want you to think about this. If you and I somehow believe that we deserve God's love, even if it's just a smidge. I said that word wrong, right? Smidge. Smidge. Even if it's just a smidge, even if it's just one-tenth of one percent of what we do is what causes us to have merit and favor in God's eyes. If we do anything that we think deserves God's love, do you understand that if that's true, then we can never live in the security of his love because it depends on us. The only way we can live in the security of God's love and be embraced by the security of his love is to recognize that it's not us, it's him. He's the one who's giving us his perfect love and his perfect promise and his perfect hope. This passage is so awesome because that's what it explains. It's him loving us always, unconditionally, without reservation, totally secured. There's a great mind of the 20th century, a a smart, smart, smart theologian. You and I wouldn't necessarily agree with all of his theology, I'm guessing, Nevertheless, he was very smart, very brilliant. His name was Karl Barth. And towards the end of his life, somebody asked him, what is, what is the most significant thought to ever go through your mind? You, ask, you, ask, you get a scholar like that in your presence, you ask him goofy questions like that. But they asked him, what's the most significant thought that's ever gone through your mind? And he thought for a minute, and then he said, it's this. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's the gospel. I'm going to pray. Sean's going to come up and lead us in our time of response. God, thank you. Thank you. We are so grateful. We are so overwhelmed. We are so blown away by your love. And all we can do is just say thank you. Praise be to God through Jesus Christ, his son. Amen.